0: Good morning. It is good to see you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where we will be. We're going to start in verse 36, and we will read down to verse 50. If you are new with us, uh, I'm so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, hopefully, it's a little warmer in here than it is outside, uh, but I enjoyed the cold weather on my way in this morning once the heater warmed up in my car. Um <laughs> We're going to look at Luke chapter 7 this morning. As you turn there, um, I, I don't know if you get curious about things, and uh, I'm just kind of curious by nature. And so uh, sometimes I, I'll run down a rabbit hole and fill my mind with useless knowledge about things that nobody cares about uh, for just a little bit. Other times uh, I will uh, take a run at something and, and I'll find myself coming back to it again and again and again, just trying to answer my own questions, trying to figure some things out. And one of those things, it's a a A little more applicable uh, than running down useless information is uh, what is a good leader? what does it mean to be a good leader? And what's a what's a good definition of leadership? And what's a, a Christian definition of leadership? And, and all of these questions swirling around in my mind. So if you go into my office and you look on uh, one of my bookshelves, I have a, a whole collection of books on leadership. Some of them, I've read all of them. Some of them, I've read pieces of them. Some of them, I've just looked at the cover, right? Uh, I, haven't, I haven't dug deep into it. But uh, you start reading these and there's all kinds of overlapping things about what makes a good leader. It's this question. Quality or that characteristic or this thing or that thing. But several years ago, I, I, uh, this was on my mind, and I was uh, in an airport flying somewhere, and uh, I like to go into the little stores at airports and look at the books and all of these things. And, and I picked up a book from the Harvard Business Review, and it was just a, a collection of articles on leadership. And the, the, very first, uh, the very first article, the very first chapter, was on what makes a great leader. And they listed all of these different things that it could be, and then they listed these studies that they had done and these studies that they had looked at, and they said there's one thing, one thing that makes good leaders rise to great leaders, leaders that have risen quickly through the ranks of their organization. There's one thing, one characteristic that's common to all of them. It's emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is this that you uh, you can sympathize, you can empathize, you can talk to someone, you can you can have a conversation that, that they feel like you're listening. You know, just being a people person in a lot of ways. And, and so this article goes through and it, it talks about what is emotional intelligence and how they how they found this out. And then it it talks about well, how do you gain emotional intelligence and what are barriers to emotional intelligence? And and one of the barriers to emotional intelligence is self awareness, right? That that you you might not really understand how you come across, or you you might not really understand uh, what people think of you, or how you sound, or, or or this or that. You know, sometimes my kids will say, "Daddy, stop yelling at us." And I'm not yelling at you, right? Like I'm uh, I'm encouraging you. I'm not yelling at you. I just want you to be better, right? Uh, and sometimes we we miss that. But my guess is that self awareness is not just a problem for. People who want to lead, self awareness at different times is a problem for all of us. Right? The, the we, we fail to see ourselves clearly. We fail to see uh, who we are and how we operate. And really, in Luke chapter seven, this passage we're gonna look at this morning, Jesus takes that and deals with it head on. So, when we look at this passage. What we're gonna see this morning is that whenever we underestimate our need, we overestimate who we are. When we, when we underestimate our need, we overestimate who we are. So look with me here at Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 36. We're going to read down to verse 50. I'm going to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in Luke chapter 7. Starting in verse 36, the Spirit says to us this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, she she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. You can be seated. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, we are grateful for your word that is true. Lord, we are grateful for your work in us. And Father, we pray this morning that you would do a great work. Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to us and that you would teach us through your word. Father, that you would make us and you would give us what we need. And you would change us into the image of your perfect son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this and we ask this in his name. Amen. When we underestimate our need, we overestimate who we are. As we look at this passage, we're going to see a few ways that we, we are, all of us, many of us, are guilty of underestimating things. First we see this is that we underestimate our need for grace. We underestimate our need for grace. Our greatest need can be what we are quickest to forget and then slowest to offer to anyone else, right? That whenever someone needs grace, maybe we're not quick to offer it to them, but whenever we need grace, we think that we we should get it quickly. You see, we underestimate our need for it because what we've done is we've overestimated who we are. Now last week we started looking at the gospel of Luke and we, we looked in Luke chapter 5 and we looked at a, a picture of a meal from Luke 5. What we're doing over these next several weeks is we're, we're walking through the book of Luke and we're just looking at meals with Jesus. We're looking at the kind of hospitality that Jesus practiced. We're, we're looking at what can we learn from the way Jesus interacted with Pharisees and with tax collectors and sinners. But one commentator, he has said that Luke is the gospel of hospitality. That's one of the the marks of this book. In each meal, we we learn something about Jesus and how he welcomes people. How he welcomes people like you and like me and like our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. And so we we come to a a second meal this morning. We look at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, Jesus, he's been invited by this Pharisee who we'll learn here in just a minute. His name is Simon. He's been invited by Simon the Pharisee to come in and eat with him. If you heard last week, this is just the opposite of what we looked at last week. Last week, it was a tax collector. This week, it's a Pharisee. Now, as we read this, what becomes clear is that Simon the Pharisee has not invited Jesus into his house to eat with him because he wants to get to know Jesus better. It's not because uh, he is suddenly interested in Jesus. No, he invites Jesus into his house because he wants to trap him. He wants to prove that Jesus is not everything that he says he is. And, and Simon thinks in his arrogance that if anyone can do this, Simon can do it, right? Simon's finally here uh, to fix all of the Pharisees' problems. And so he invites Jesus into his house to uh, to eat this meal and And what we see from the end of the story is that this seems to be a dinner party. It's another feast that is happening. And and if you remember last week, that homes of the day, especially those for the the wealthy, they typically had a courtyard where if there were more than just a few people eating this meal, the meal would take place in the courtyard around tables that were low where they would recline at table, but they weren't kicked back. They were laying forward, maybe on their side or on their belly or, or whatever it may be, and they're eating. If pastor buyers could see what was happening, and in verse 37, we see something interesting. It says, behold, and behold, or, or surprisingly, or pay attention, look, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet, and with her tears, and, and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So this uninvited guest shows up. The the way Luke says here, we have it translated, a woman of the city who was a sinner. If we were to literally translate this, it would be a woman known in the city as a sinner. She had a reputation. Her reputation was one as a sinner. Most likely she was a prostitute. And everyone knew who she was. Everyone knew what kind of business she engaged in. Why would she be in the Pharisee's house? Well, there's a, a strange custom of the day that if a stranger was walking by a home and saw a party, saw a feast happening in the courtyard, they could wander into the feast, they could engage in conversation, and they could expect to be fed. In fact, commentators think that what's happening here is that this is the part of the meal that the Greeks called the symposium. The, the symposium was whenever uh, the meal was pretty well over, The host would bring bring out bread and wine, and the guests would sit around the table, and they would talk about a topic, and they would discuss this topic, each giving their own opinion. They would would argue. They would go back and forth. They would bat this topic around, and that's typically when these uninvited guests would begin to make their appearance. Maybe they heard the the lively conversation, and they decided, hey, I want to get in on that. Right, I, I wanna have that conversation. Maybe, maybe at Thanksgiving, you, you've been around the table when suddenly a lively conversation starts happening and typically my thought is not, hey, I need to get on this. My thought is, is there any pie left? Right? Like I'm, I'm gonna get up and walk away. But here people would come in, they wanna be a part of the conversation or maybe they're hungry and they, they wanna grab some food and so it was expected that the host would, would feed them as well. But this woman who shows up, She's not there for any of that. Now, Luke grows; he goes to great lengths to to remind us that this is in the Pharisee's house. This is a big deal. In verse 36, he says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and went into the Pharisee's home. Then verse 37, When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. This is a big deal that this woman, who is a known sinner, that she would dare to set foot in a Pharisee's house. The Pharisees prided themselves on being holy. They prided themselves on being separate from sinners. They didn't even want to walk on the same side of the road as someone like her, let alone be seen with her in his home. And yet she, she goes in, and she's not there on accident, right? It tells us that she learns that Jesus is reclining at table, that he's, that he's eating this meal. And so she's not there on accident. She comes prepared. She comes with an alabaster flask. Now, an alabaster is a kind of stone. It was a, a soft stone that could be hewn out fairly easily, and you could put ointment or perfumes in. This was probably this woman, one of her prized possessions. And she comes in, and just imagine the scene. It says that she comes up from behind Jesus, and so sitting around the table, and the conversation's going, and they see this woman, they see the sinner, they see her walking in and coming to approach Jesus. But Jesus' back is to her. So you can just imagine the, the, the scene where suddenly there's a hush that grows over the conversation. The conversation stops. Their eyes get big. And suddenly, Jesus feels tears on his feet. You can probably hear it. It says that she was weeping. It, she, wasn't, she wasn't just tearful. She was weeping. So suddenly the the room is silent. The room is still. And all you can hear is this woman crying. Her tears falling on Jesus' feet. And she came prepared to give him the ointment, but she didn't prepare for this. So she doesn't have anything to wipe his feet with. His feet would have been dusty and would have been dirty. So what does she do? She takes her hair down. So it would been unthinkable. For a woman to take her hair down, this was only done at home. This was a sensual act. She doesn't have anything else to do. She should not have any el- way to clean his feet. So she, she takes her hair down and she, she wipes the tears from his feet. She anoints him with oil. This wasn't common. This is not a common practice of the day. Now we can imagine what the Pharisee's response would be. Right? The Pharisee's response is not, look at how sweet that is. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. The Pharisee sees this woman as a sinner because her sins are obvious. His sins, though, are a different story. Now understand, Pharisees did not think that they were perfect. They didn't think that they were without sin because they offered sacrifices at the temple, right? They, they, they brought offerings. They, they paid their time. They, they did all these. They, they didn't think that they were not sinful. They, they thought that they were sinners. The problem was they just thought that your sins were worse than their sins, right? That they thought that, that your sins were much more worse, much more significant than theirs. Theirs was that maybe they didn't keep the Sabbath perfectly or so they thought. Right, theirs were that maybe this happened or that happened, but hers—that's a different story. That is so much worse. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking: it's not degrees of sin that separate us from God; it's every sin separates us from God. And you might think I would never be like the Pharisee. Are you sure? You ever looked at someone and shook your head? You, you, you ever looked at someone and just thought, hmm, man, I can't believe that. I can't believe that they would do something like that. I can't believe they would say something like that. See, here's the truth. Before God, we are all on equal ground. God doesn't look out and see, well, that person's been a little holier and that person's been a little bit holier. No, he looks out and he says, guilty. We are all guilty of sin. On this passage, John Calvin says this. He says, it is hypocrisy alone that leads men to be careless about themselves and haughtily despise others. Or that our hypocrisy makes us do that. I don't know if you've ever been guilty of being a hypocrite, but... Over the last couple of weeks, I have found myself guilty of this. One of the things I decided to do in 2024 was to stop drinking Coke Zero, right? Pray for the Coca-Cola company. Their profits are taking a hit. And so I decided, well, if I'm, if I'm going to stop drinking Coke Zero, I, I'm going to need to get caffeine uh, another way. And pastors can't use drugs, so I, I was trying to figure out what, what was I going to do, and I've never been a coffee drinker. In fact, I make fun of coffee drinkers, right? I tell them well, that's bitter water for bitter people in bitter times, right? <laughs> that uh, if you really need coffee to wake you up, you need to go to sleep earlier or whatever it may be. Well, brothers and sisters, I, I stand here before you changed man, right? Uh, I, I have seen my need, Right? Now, I still judge coffee drinkers. I just judge people who put creamer in it. Right? I'm drinking black coffee. In the same way, like the Pharisee, we underestimate our need for grace because ultimately, we overestimate who we are. Right? We overestimate how good we can be. We overestimate how holy we can be and how righteous we can be. Right? I overestimated myself. I don't need coffee, right? Just give me water and Jesus and I'll be fine. But I'd never had this experience where uh, this week I, I was just kind of tired. It was after lunch. I had, I had eaten a healthy lunch, by the way. Uh, and I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to drink a cup of coffee. And so I grab it. And like, as it hits my lips, like something just perked me up, right? Uh, it was as if like the Lord just whispered in my ear, like, I love you. Or you know, whatever, whatever it may be. I was hit with my hypocrisy in that moment. I felt like, ah, where's Casey at? I I apologize to him for making fun of his pumpkin spice lattes. Um, (laughs) But I will still make fun of him for those. Um, But we overestimate our need for grace. We we underestimate our need for grace. We we overestimate who we are. And so here we we see in this passage that, that we underestimate our need for grace. Next we see this is that we underestimate our need for forgiveness. We underestimate our need for forgiveness. We underestimate our need for forgiveness because we forget that we need it, right? We underestimate our need for grace because we forget that we need it. We forget that we need, we that we need forgiveness. So verse 40, Jesus is going to begin to illustrate this point. He's gonna do what Jesus does so well. Jesus is a master storyteller. and he, He's a master at crafting these parables. And so look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, I love this. I love this for two reasons. First, in verse 39, we see that Simon said to himself, Simon thought to himself, this man obviously is not a prophet. If this man were a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman this is, right? He thinks that to himself. And then Jesus looks at Simon and answers Simon's thoughts, right? Simon, Simon, I've got something to say to you, bud. But then I, I also love this. We were talking about this passage this week, and Pastor Mike pointed this out. He said, you know, when Jesus says I have something to say to you, you should listen. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher, Say it, Rabbi, say say what you need to say. Verse 41, we read this parable, it's just two verses. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? A moneylender, someone who who gave money, who, who lent money at for interest, right? It typically a high interest rate. It typically not someone who is very interested in forgiving debt, especially a debt this high. These are significant amounts. Now, one is ten times larger than the other, but they are both significant amounts. So, five uh, denarii, dinara—that's that's around the wages for around twenty months' worth of work. Uh, Fifty denarii, that, that's the wages for around two months of work. So, both significant. Cost right? But both significant debts. And, and Jesus says here that this money lender, that he, he forgives the debt. They couldn't pay, and so he, he cancels the debt. And then he asks this question. Now, now, which of them will love you or will love him more? Now, in verse 42, what we see is we see this picture of the nature of Forgiveness love the way he says He says the debts are canceled. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness from God is that he has canceled our debt. He has canceled our guilt that our sin has produced. When you forgive someone else, you are canceling the offense that they have wronged you with. When you receive forgiveness, he, it has been canceled. Right? The Psalms tell us that A picture of forgiveness is that God has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. There's no more memory of them. Maybe maybe you struggle with remembering things. Maybe I I wonder, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because it'd be more than we think if statistics are true, but maybe you've found a subscription that you were paying for that you didn't know anything about. The statistics tell us that somewhere between 42 and 60% of consumers have a subscription or have had a subscription to something that they didn't know about. Maybe it was a free trial. Like me, I am a sucker for a free trial, right? You give me a free trial, I'm saying yes, and then I put it in my phone, I put it in my calendar as a reminder hey, cancel the free trial. Problem is, sometimes I can't remember what the free trial was, right? I don't remember what I've started. Or, or, or maybe. Maybe it was one that you didn't know what it was. Not long ago, my, Anna asked me, she said, hey, do you know what this is? I said, I have no idea what that is. She said, good, we're paying $10 a month for it. I said, well, let's, let's not do that. Right? Let's cancel that. Or maybe it's because your kids have, have started a subscription that you didn't know anything about. Uh, we, we have some Alexas in our house, and uh, we will talk to Alexa and ask, hey, what's the weather or this or that? And, and about, I don't know, two or three times a week, Alexa will tell us, hey, did you know that I can do this as well for $9.99 a month? And then one of my kids invariably will go to say yes, right? Uh, they say yes to Alexa, no to me. Strange. It's a weird, weird thing. But we've got to jump in before they can and, and say, no, no, we do not want that subscription. Right, because we do these things and we forget about them, but that begins to add up. And like forgotten subscriptions, unforgiveness, it's expensive. Right? Carrying that guilt, carrying that shame, carrying that, prob, uh, that, that problem, it's expensive, but it's also expensive for the one who refuses to forgive, for the one who won't forgive, uh, carrying that bitterness and carrying that frustration and, and carrying that anger. And here what we see is that forgiveness... It's costly, right? It costs this money lender something. It, it, it costs us something. And ultimately, the truest picture of forgiveness we have ever seen, it costs Jesus his life. Now this, this story, it ends with a question. Verse 43, verse 42, Jesus asks, now which of them will love him more? And verse 43, Simon answers, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Right, Simon gets it right. Jesus shows him that this woman has has felt the freedom of canceled sin and she's responded in the only way that she knows how. Simon doesn't understand it because Simon doesn't understand his need for forgiveness. Simon doesn't understand his need for grace. Now understand this, this forgiveness that Jesus is teaching about, this is not some kind of generic forgiveness. And maybe you've walked out of a store and, and you forgot to hold the door open for the person coming behind you and you jump back and you grab it. And you say, oh, I'm so sorry. They say, no problem. And you go your separate ways and you never think about it again. But that's not what this is. This forgiveness is from a holy God to unholy people. It's from a righteous God to a sinful person. And understand that this forgiveness, it's not earned. It's not not costly because we did something to earn it. It's costly because it cost God his son. It was God's initiative. It It wasn't our idea. No one went to the father and said, hey, you think you could figure out a way to spare us and to save us? No, this forgiveness was God's initiative. And when we experience it, we respond like this woman. We will love Jesus because he loved us first, right? We will love Jesus because he took the initiative. He came for us. He came after us. He came to us. And he didn't say, I've come 90, you come 10. No, he said, I have come all the way. Now rest. Now enjoy. Now have freedom and forgiveness. Not because of what you've done, but because of what you can't do, right? That we can't earn it we can't be forgiven on our own but what jesus says is that he will forgive us just as he has forgiven this woman and this forgiveness it's every day his mercies are new every morning see we under we underestimate our need for forgiveness and our need for grace and finally we see one more way that we underestimate we underestimate the power of jesus we underestimate the The power of Jesus. See, we're guilty of both sides of the coin, underestimating our need for grace and underestimating Jesus' ability to meet that need. Verse 44, Jesus acknowledges the woman for the first time. So far in this story, Jesus has not acknowledged that anything is happening. Verse 44, he says, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? At this point, it's like, well, Jesus, you're the only one that hasn't seen her, right? Everyone has noticed. Simon, everyone has noticed. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss from the time I came in. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. You would not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. Now this is an ironic question to Simon, isn't it? Do you see this one? Yeah, obviously. He's, he's proving a point. And there were some cultural expectations of the day. Whenever a host would have a guest, especially an invited guest in his home, they were expected to offer some things. They are expected to offer water so that you could clean your feet because you'd been wearing sandals and you'd been walking down dusty roads. They, they were expected to, to greet you with a kiss. It was a sign of respect. It was a sign of thank you for, for coming into my home. They were expected to have an ointment or a perfume so that you could freshen up. Simon did none of these things. But the woman did. Jesus says, I came into your home, but she's been a better host. I came into your home, but but she's done what you were supposed to do. Now, why would this woman do these things? Because not only does Jesus welcome sinners, but sinners welcome Jesus. That sinners are attracted to Jesus. Now, it's likely that this woman had heard Jesus preach. Several times up to this point in Luke, we've seen where Jesus is preaching to the crowds. Jesus is preaching to the crowd. Jesus is preaching to the crowd. And so it's very likely that this woman, she had heard Jesus preach. She had heard him preach this message of repentance and of forgiveness, this gospel of the kingdom. And so she hears it and her life is changed. Her burden is lifted. She she feels the freedom and the forgiveness that, that Jesus gives. And so now she's going to respond in the only way that she knows how. In verse 47, Jesus, or verse 45, Jesus goes through this list of things. He says, "Simon, you didn't do any of this, but she did. There's verse 47. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. And we don't, we don't know who this woman was. Some people will say that it, it was Mary Magdalene. We have no reason to believe that it was Mary Magdalene. There's no clues here or in the rest of Scripture that, that tell us it was Mary Magdalene. As far as we know, this was just a woman. So we've got to believe that we we'll get to heaven one day. We'll be walking down the street. Because you're in heaven, everyone's going to say hello, right? Uh, you're going to know. You need to know people, and you're going to pass this woman and you're ask her, hey, What's your name? She's going to say, it's not important what my name is. So you, you remember that story from Luke chapter 7? Say, so, yeah, I remember that story. You're going to say, you're, you're the woman that washed Jesus's hair, washed his feet with your hair? She's going to say, no. I'm the woman whose sins were many, but now I'm forgiven. Are the, my, my sins, that though they were many, now I'm forgiven. See, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted Christ to save you, that is your identity. That is your story. That your sins, though they were many, are forgiven. And so Jesus, he, he says, she had loved much, but who is forgiven little loves much. Now understand, she's not saved because she had washed his feet or because she had anointed him with oil. Those acts of worship were the fruit of her salvation. They were the the fruit of her forgiveness. She wasn't forgiven because she did those, but because she was forgiven, she did them. Right? It was just a natural response. In fact, if you you flip to the end of the passage in verse 50, Jesus makes it much clearer. He says, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He didn't say your work has saved you. He didn't say what you've done has saved you. No, he says your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, in verse 48, he gives that ultimate declaration. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Now, she had already experienced this. Her her sins weren't forgiven there, right? Her her sins were forgiven when she had believed, right? Jesus is making this statement, one, to remind her that her sins have been forgiven. But I think there's a second reason. I think he makes the statement for those at the dinner party. Because look look at verse 48, and he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Verse 49, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who who is this? These people at this feast, at this party, they had seen or they had heard the stories of Jesus healing people. The beginning of Luke 7, Jesus heals a man. They had heard stories of Jesus raising people from the dead. Earlier in Luke 7, he raises a widow's son from the grave. They had heard these stories, yet they still underestimated his power. They still underestimated his power to forgive sins. And so in verse 49, there's this question, who is this who even forgives sins? That's the question that you and I have to answer. That's the question that you and I have to wrestle with and that you and I have to get right. Who is this? Now, I'm gonna take you to some places. We don't have it on the screen, so you can listen or you can follow along. If you look back to verse 34 of Luke chapter seven. Here, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, and he's he's talking about the way that the Pharisees perceive him. We're gonna pick it up at the end of what he says. He says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. He's come feasting. And you say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend of sinners. He can't be holy, he's a a friend of sinners. Now, Luke, he's putting this gospel together and he's putting it together intentionally. Maybe we might expect Luke right here to include a story about the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus to show that Jesus isn't a sinner. And said, what does Luke do? He doubles down on the truth that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And he doubles down on this truth that Jesus is a friend of sinners because Jesus came to save sinners. He, he came to save people like us. But there's something else here that's, that's even a little more subtle. It says, the son of man came eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. That phrase glutton and drunkard, that's not an accidental phrase. That, that's a phrase that every Hebrew son would have been familiar with. Every Hebrew child would have known you don't want to be a glutton and a drunkard. Why is that? Flip to Deuteronomy 21, or I'll read it for you. Uh, Deuteronomy 21. Uh, This is, Deuteronomy is Moses preaching. He's he's kind of re- Recapping the history of Israel, recapping the the Ten Commandments, kind of clarifying some things. And in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 21, starts this paragraph about a rebellious son. In verse 20, it gives the instructions leading up to verse 20 that if you have a rebellious son and he won't listen to discipline, then you bring him before the elders of the town. Verse 20, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. They're saying Jesus is this rebellious son. And then Jesus is free from sin. But if you keep reading there in Deuteronomy 21, Into verse 22, we read, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, right, it's following on the heels of that that death sentence intentionally, and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So back in Luke 7, Jesus says, you say I'm a, A drunkard and a glutton. Deuteronomy 21 says that if you want to purge the evil from your midst, well, you've got to get rid of the the glutton and the drunkard. What Jesus and Luke, the Holy Spirit, what, what they're showing us here is that the way that evil is purged from our midst is not by weeding out the rebellious son. It's that Jesus has become the rebellious son. And Jesus didn't become the rebellious son by sinning. No, on the cross, he was cursed by God. He was hung on a tree. And all of our rebellion was poured out on Christ, on the cross. He took all of our punishment, all that our sin deserves. He was, the Bible says, he was forsaken by the Father on the cross for you and for me. Not just so that evil could be purged from our midst, but so that evil could be purged from our hearts. And that he was buried and he rose from the grave victoriously three days later, cleansing us from sin, cleansing us from death, giving us eternal life. Who is Jesus? Who is this who even forgives sins? Well, this is the Savior. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. But when we underestimate who we are, we underestimate our need for that Jesus. We underestimate our need and we overestimate our righteousness of which we have none. See, we remember our need. We see our need clearly by remembering Jesus. When we do, he cleanses us. When we do, he welcomes us. When we do, he he forgives us. See, when we do, we experience humility. The experiencing grace, experiencing forgiveness fuels humility. But here's what it also does. It fuels hospitality. Because we, sinners who've been welcomed by Jesus, when we see ourselves as we really are, then... We want to welcome people the way we have been welcomed. So we have to answer, who is Jesus? Maybe for the first time this morning, you're realizing that Jesus, he's the crucified and risen son of God who died for your sins, who rose for your salvation. And now if you'll put your trust in him, he'll save you. But answering this question, who is Jesus, it's not just for the unbeliever or the yet-to-believe or the new believer. It's also for the mature Christian as well, the one who's been walking with Jesus for years. Well, how is that? Well, one, we, we have to wake up believing the gospel every morning. But also, this is the question that helps you defeat sin. When you are tempted to sin, the question you ask is, who is Jesus? Is Jesus better than that sin? Yes. Is Jesus stronger than that sin? Yes. Is Jesus worth me saying no to that sin? Yes. And that fuels your fight against sin. When you're walking through trial, when you, when you are engaged in intense suffering, the question isn't, God, when is this gonna be over? The question is, who is Jesus? If God didn't spare his own son for me, then this suffering, this trial, what Paul says in Romans 8, isn't to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. How do do you walk through suffering? Who's Jesus? How how do you walk through temptation? Who is Jesus? How, How do you walk through when life is good? Who is Jesus? This morning, we need to remember who Jesus is. Maybe this morning, you need to see who Jesus is for the first time. We're gonna respond, and the way we respond is we, we sing and we pray, and so maybe as we sing, you need to consider that question, who is Jesus? You need to think about who is Jesus. You know, in some ways, when we read a story like this, the application point is just simply be amazed by Jesus. So maybe this morning, you just need to spend some time being amazed by Jesus. Maybe this morning, you're encountering Jesus in an eternity-shifting way for the first time. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know what to do, right? What's next? We would love love to talk with you about that. We would love to have that conversation. When this service is over, you can walk out those doors and you'll see our, our Next Steps banners on the right. See someone in a bright yellow hello shirt and grab them. Say, hey, I need to talk to someone about Jesus. Maybe you were invited by someone Maybe you're sitting next to someone and grab and say, hey, I need to talk to someone about Jesus. We would love to do that. We'd love to talk about Jesus with you. Because at the end of the day, our greatest need is to remember who Jesus is. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for Jesus. And Father, we, we pray that you would help us to remember who this Jesus is who even forgives sins. God, that, that Jesus, he's wonderful and he's glorious and he's majestic. And so Father, I, I pray that we would have a clear view of Jesus this morning so that we would not underestimate our need and end up overestimating who we are. But, but instead that we, we would have gospel given clear. So father we we pray that you would you would do what only you can do that you would apply your word you would apply your gospel and you would apply your son to our hearts. Father we pray that we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.